1: The public, which is used now to a flat digital world where you can get the date, you can get a car, you can get anything you want, a house, literally at the speed of light by clicking a computer, suddenly is confronted with government and media that is distant, far away, slow moving and never listens.
2: And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. The 30th anniversary of a fall of a Berlin Wall passed just a couple of days ago. And I've been thinking back on my own memories of the fall of a wall and what they might mean today. I have a vivid memory of watching the fall of a Berlin Wall live on television when I would have been seven years old. I see myself in this big spacious living room following along the events and having some very childlike understanding that people who had been terribly oppressed, who had been unfree, would now be able to live in liberty. But there's one problem with that memory. That big spacious living room that I'm picturing in my mind belongs to a house in which I and my family did not live until two or three years after the fall of a war. I must have seen all of this on a documentary when I was nine or ten and misremembered it as seeing it live. What's interesting about this memory is that I think more broadly we have a false memory of what 1989 was about. As the wonderful political scientist Ivan Khrushchev, who I've had on a previous episode of A Good Fight, has argued, we assumed that 1989 was a liberal democratic revolution, that everybody was united, not just in disliking the communist regime, but in wanting liberal democracy. Actually, everybody was united in disliking the communist regime, but what they wanted instead differed were people who genuinely were fighting for liberal democratic values, but others who wanted a nationalist revolution that would put an end to Russian occupation of their countries. Others still who disliked the secular nature of the communist regime and wanted more traditional, more religious values. And so something that often seems puzzling becomes legible from that perspective. How is it that so many people in Poland have re-elected the populist regime there, even though it is endangering democracy in crucial ways. Why is it that somebody like Viktor Orban, who was at the forefront of the 1989 revolutions, now is turning himself into a quasi-dictator? Well, the answer is that this isn't exactly a betrayal of the revolution of 1989, though it is a betrayal of what I liked about the revolution, it is a kind of civil war among the different strands of the revolution. That helps to explain both why liberal democracy has not triumphed to the extent that we might have expected 30 years ago, and why it would be premature, too early, to conclude that the reign of liberal democracy is about to end. This civil war has been subterranean for a long time. It is now increasingly visible. And it is clear to me which side of it I stand on. I hope that's true of many of you as well. Now, it's my real pleasure to introduce Martin Guri to you. Martin Guri has come to attention with a book called The Revolt of the Public. It is one of the most fascinating, interesting, engaging, and in certain ways puzzling, explanations of the importance of the rise of the internet and of digital media for populism and how politics works in the 21st century in general. I've learned a lot from the book. I also wanted to push back on a few of those claims. So you'll see a really interesting conversation in which we explore these crucial issues and in which I try to make sense exactly of what Martin is arguing. It's a good episode, believe me. All right, I hope you enjoy it. Speak to you soon. Welcome to the podcast, Martin. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. Let's set the stage for a moment to understand who you are and how you came to have a really big impact on our debate about the way in which digital technology and the internet are transforming our politics. So you are, by training, a CIA analyst. So how do you think that changes or influences your perspective on politics? That's very different from most of the people I have on the podcast who, you know, by and large are people who spend a lot of time in some ivory tower reading articles in a library or perhaps doing some coding for data. How do you think your experience as a CIA analyst gives you a very different view on politics?
1: Well, I think there's a couple of aspects that that really are different from, say, academia, or even sometimes State Department was my experience. Number one, as you may or may not know, CIA is not allowed to propose policy. CIA does intelligence, which is sort of like they deliver platonic truth to the president, Mm. right? So we can get into that and how feasible that is, but what that trains you as an analyst is not to look for something that you want to happen, but basically to try and understand what the reality on the ground is from the perspective of the people who are actually conducting whatever uh, you are analyzing. So instead of what you get today, which is a lot of top-down interpretation, you want to understand exactly what's going on, and you want to understand it from not an advocate position, but understanding reality. It turns out, in my opinion, and CIA unfortunately is, is a great example of this, getting reality right, is tough. Predicting it, which is the second thing CIA is supposed to do, which I never got into and never have believed in, is impossible. Okay. It's impossible. So, but just to get reality right, so you can look ahead and say, well, what, what may happen next is tremendously tough because you do have all these concerns, all these opinions, all these you know, contextual beliefs that
2: drive you to certain conclusions and may blind you to what's going on. On the ground is there something that you personally in your work or at least the agency while you were working on got really wrong in a way that you're allowed to talk about
1: yeah i mean i think basically cia exists to prevent discontinuities right the cia exists because of pearl harbor that's the the founding event that led to some gigantic intelligence agency existing so that precedents will never be caught so unprepared well ever since then we've had 9-11, and I can give you a whole roster of discontinuities that CIA got wrong. In fact, CIA gets it right, usually, when tomorrow looks like yesterday, which happens a lot. If you watch the world go, mostly tomorrow looks like yesterday. But that's not what the president wants. He can figure that one out himself. The president wants the next Pearl Harbor, the next 9-11, the next implosion of the Soviet Union. I
2: mean... It is and an, it turns out, that systematically the CIA has been unable to predict this, As by the way, has political science and think, in a different yes. realm, of economics.
1: I think it's an impossible model. I mean, it, mm. somebody wants this. Somebody wants this to be so. Somebody wants for some agency to say this is what's going to be happening tomorrow, Mr. President. But on principle, I believe it's impossible. It's an impossible model. And I mean, when you think about just the implosion of the of the Soviet Union, it was our strategic enemy for like fifty years you would have thought that when it fell apart, the Central Intelligence Agency would have some clue. They were completely unprepared. And they were, for months and years afterwards, you could hear rumble, no, no, they're coming back, they're coming back. They have been weaned into a world in which the Cold War was the reality mm-hmm. and they, didn't want to, they couldn't wean themselves
2: off of that. I like by way, normally I would interrupt the conversation at this please. point because there's a helicopter flying in the background, but I feel like it's nicely themed yes, for our conversation. So please a... excuse the background noise, but it is a, a black helicopter monitoring what Martin is saying. <laughs> um, the, uh... There's probably a sniper on it too. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think the biggest mistake that historians would make is that they look at those moments of radical disjuncture that nobody at the time predicted, or perhaps three or four people predicted for the wrong reasons, because they were cranks who were always all the time. Time about something, right? And they then say, Well, you know what? This was obvious. And here there are all the reasons why it was inevitable that this was happening. So I think you know it's amazing when you look at these moments of disjunction in history and you read history books about them. Everything is leading towards them. All of the strands are going there. And it seems like everybody must have known. And when you look at contemporaries and none of them had an inkling that this was about to happen. And there's something in the distance between those two intellectual worlds which should concern us, I think.
1: Yeah, I think scholars and, and government analysts are very nimble. So if they said one or two words that could po- they could point to, and by the way, they write their reports and their studies this way just so that you can say well i used this word that kind of foreshadowed what happened so you know you could always say well i i, I knew it was obvious i knew it was coming and then everybody kind of shuffles to the side from i have no clue though of course we all saw it coming you know and you listen to the disc- discourse today about the soviet union well of course it was collapsing. everybody could see it coming well nobody saw it coming well
2: so you see i think that Increasingly, I think that a lot of very helpful intellectual ground can be covered, not by predicting things confidently, but by going against the orthodoxies of false certainty. So in in my own work, I warned about the threat to democracy from the rise of populism and a bunch of other things. And people sometimes say that I sort of, you know, I'm predicting that all of these democracies will collapse or anything like that. Certainly when I started writing about this before 2016. People thought, this is a crazy view. How can you predict all of this? And my position was always, well, I'm not predicting, you're predicting, right? The the orthodoxy in political science and in in public discourse was, we know that these democracies are going to be stable for the next hundred years. And I was not saying, I predict they will collapse. I was saying, I think your certainty is absurd. We cannot know that. And there are some good reasons to think that there's going to be problems. So I don't think I was projecting They were projecting. And so so I think a lot of the times, this is the fertile intellectual ground to look for. Where is everybody assuming a particular continuity? And you can uh, stir the pot a little bit and actually make ourselves more... Not that you're going to be able to predict the specific discontinuity, but you're able to make us prepared for one of a range of discontinuities by saying, hang on a second, let's be careful about this consensus.
1: Yes, there were a handful, was a considerable number, I would say, in my corner of CIA that kind of advocated that approach. The problem is this, if you're inside government, of course, is if you're advocating kind of counterfactual and off the obvious possibilities, you could be wrong a lot of the time. So then you have to have a system like, say, the Silicon Valley system, where failure and being wrong is just part of doing business. And government is not that, right? Government is risk averse.
2: And So everybody clusters around the obvious. Well, I also think it's about whether you're wrong in the same way as everybody else, right? In a place like government, if you're wrong because you didn't see this continuity coming, but so is everybody else, what are we going to do? Fire everybody who was wrong and be left with nobody? So nearly as a matter of organizational logic, you have to forgive people for being wrong in the way that everybody else was also wrong. Whereas if you're wrong on your own, it's very easy to say, well, you're just an idiot and a crank and we should probably marginalize you or get rid of you.
1: In government, being wrong is just deadly. You don't ever want to be tagged as if you made a call and you failed, so you basically there's stuff you write. you write it very mushily so that you can always claim some some part of that stepped into what actually happened, and then cluster around the obvious and the immediate and tomorrow is like yesterday, and don't take leaps. I had a friend, and now dead, and sadly, a brilliant guy who, when the information explosion in the digital age began to blossom all over the world started to see in a country like Egypt, where all you had was silence. If it wasn't government mandated, you didn't hear it, all right? And suddenly there's all these voices, all these voices mocking uh, Hosni Mubarak, Mm. angry at Hosni Mubarak, And, and it was startling. And he wrote a paper, and he couldn't get it. Anywhere, he had it back and kept it for the rest of his life because it looked like somebody had slashed the wrist, and so it had so many red marks on it mm. that it was like one gigantic blot of red. And number one, they told him, "Well, you're not an Egypt analyst," and which was true. And, but number two, it was like, well, "Who are these people? Who are? Why should I care about these people?" Right, right. Uh, and this is completely off of what we're watching. Mubarak is gonna basically pass on the presidency to his son Gamal, and this is—he's called the Pharaoh. He's been there thirty years, and. So you cluster around the safe and obvious, and if you do what my friend did, you get red marked to
2: death, pretty much. Yeah, well, that's depressing. So you started writing a book about how the internet is transforming our politics, and I want to get into the book in a moment. I have to say it is one of the books I was most exhilarated to read in the last years. It has deep insight and idiosyncratic and very engaging style, and uh, you know it's been a long time since I've read a sort of book of serious analytical nonfiction and felt like I was as drawn to the next page as in a novel. This is serious praise and I mean every word of it. I also sometimes am puzzled by the argument or unsure about what the argument actually is. I've taught the text a few times and I sometimes struggle to actually be very clear. I feel lost at certain points. So, So, I want to dissect the book a little bit. But before we get there, it has an interesting publication history, so you self-published it. Yes. And then it started making the rounds somehow uh, in Silicon Valley, and then... Well, uh, well, actually, what
1: happened was, I mean, you were talking about predictions. This is a funny the golden instance of this. Yeah, I self-published in 2014, mainly because I didn't want editors. I just felt like, this is what I had to say. We can go into the the genesis of the idea if you want to, but basically this is something that had been stirring, not just with me, but with a a number of my colleagues in CIA. I had left CIA for many years when I wrote it, but the thought remained with me. I self-published and it did okay, it did okay. And then your friend Donald Trump got elected. All right, my right. Donald Trump. Yes, yeah, I know you love him. <laughs> so basically, I'm a Trump profiteer. I mean, everybody said this is the man who predicted Donald Trump. There isn't a word about Donald Trump in the book, mm. by the way. There just isn't a word. So let's get intellectually honest. I did not predict Donald Trump. I basically put frameworks in place that if you follow points. Yes, there were several people. Uh, Silicon Valley. I'm a hero there. I'm a zero in Washington, but I'm a hero in, in uh, Silicon Valley. And this new Stripe Press started by a 29-year-old billionaire, that try to imagine that, called Patrick Collison, who's also a certified genius, was looking for books to publish. And so what I did for the second edition is I updated it. Trump is there all the way to like 2018. So I updated it from 2014 to 2018. It was published late, late in 2018, and it's been doing pretty well.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: The public. And, you know, when you hear public in that context, it's tempting to think we're talking about one unified public, as you're seeing in some ways today in Hong Kong or perhaps in Bolivia or in Chile. You know, there is a sort of consensus opinion in society. They get really pissed off with the people in power. They come out sort of as one, they revolt, right? That's very different from what you mean, right? You have a sort of technical definition of what you mean by the public. So, what In your mind, does the revolt of the public actually mean?
1: Well, I mean, I think what I try to capture is that there's always a reality on the ground. And I always try starting out by saying what the public is not. It's not the people, which, of course, the public always wants to claim it is. That's just a category of political philosophy. And it's not the masses, which is kind of an old-fashioned 20th century term. It's not even the crowd on the street, even though I would say... In the day of the digital device, the crowd and the public have a very intimate relationship, as you would say in, uh, in Facebook, it's complicated. Um, <laughs> the reality on the ground is quite the opposite of what you said. The public is not min- uh, one, it's many it's many it's highly fractured the public that i describe is what remains after this tidal wave of information has swept away these large institutional mass organizations that sort of homogenized the public into making one or very few choices, right? And the public never was that. It went with the choices it was given. Once you remove those institutional forces and you allow the public its own voice, you realize it's got dozens, hundreds, many, many voices, right? The dynamic, as I see it, is that, therefore, whenever you are trying to gather around any positive program, you have a lot of yelling and screaming and disagreement. Whenever you try to gather around a negation of the system, you try to gather around the feeling of distance and alienation from power, but not just power, also from many other institutional structures like media, for example, you can gather people from many different beliefs and opinions just on that point of negation,
2: battering away at the institutions of power and information and so forth. So, right. I mean, when you think of something like Tahrir Square and the way that that revolution in Egypt then developed, you can see the distinction very easily. It's easy for people to come together and say, this guy, Hassan Mubarak has ruled us for decades. Things aren't going very well. Let's get rid of him. Once he's gone and you have to agree on how should our society be ruled and what do we want to do now, it becomes much, much more difficult and the fish has come out in a way that's true of 1989 in Central and Eastern Europe as well right? It was easy to say, we hate this regime. And we gave one kind of interpretation to what the revolution was, but actually was many different strains of what people wanted. And that's playing out in the kind of fight between liberals and authoritarians and more secular and more religious people and nationalists and Europeanists throughout the region now. But when you're talking about this revolt of the public. So what does it mean? I mean, I think there's a phrase you have in your book that is sort of these self-assembled different groups. So why are they more powerful now than they used to be? I mean, they always existed in a certain kind of way. Why is it that a public, because there's multiple publics in your understanding, right? So a public, like the people who really care about X, about veganism or about a very strict interpretation of Islam or about getting rid of immigrants or whatever it is. Why is it that they have become more powerful previous technological changes we've seen?
1: Part of it is that they have become more powerful and the reason is pretty straightforward. I think they now have access to infinite amounts of information for all practical purposes and which they can not only consume, but they can produce. So they have a voice and they have an informed voice insofar as they're interested in that. But I think equally as important, if not more so, is that the institutions that they seem to be in rebellion against have been crippled by this tsunami of information that that began with the digital age. They were essentially predicated on owning little monopolies of information for their own domains. So if you were in the government, like I was, you had your own pot of information that nobody else could look at, all right? If you were the New York Times, you had your own pot of information that nobody else could look at. And so you, as an information provider, had a lot of prestige because you were handing out a valuable commodity, right? And if you happen to be wrong, you could always fudge it. And if you happen to be really, really wrong, you could be disgraced, but the system was fine. You were just a bad egg and a good system, right? Mm. Today, with that information sweeping across the institutions, every error, every blunder, every misstep, every failure, every bad call in terms of what's gonna happen next, as we were talking about before, is not only out in the open but it's center stage mm. it's center stage the public is watching this so these people who have posed as sort of platonic guardians we know best we have the access to information we will manage uh, the institutions and you will be rewarded with a good government and good media suddenly you realize you're seeing the
2: sausage being made and you have a sense that these people are as clueless as you are So I'm hearing two slightly different points here, which go together. I don't think there's a tension between them. So the first is that there's just not the same information advantage that media and political elites have compared to ordinary people who might be interested in a topic, right? It used to be that if you are the journalist on that beat of the New York Times, or if you are a CIA analyst, you had a ton of access to what people are saying, to documents, to all kinds of things that an ordinary person 500 miles away just just could not access, right? And so that's why the information you were given from something like the New York Times was objectively very valuable to you because it synthesized stuff to which you didn't have access. Uh, The second point, which I think is slightly separate, but again, complementary, is that, well, when people get it wrong, you couldn't really complain. You could write a letter to the editor, you could grouse to your friends. But now there's this very public process in which you know, a journalist gets something wrong and everybody immediately points it out on Twitter. And so there's a sort of much deeper... And I
1: would add that it's more than having had an advantage. I think what has happened touches on uh, the authority and the legitimacy of these institutions. That's what they rested on. They rested on knowing. And now they're shown as not knowing. And now the public, as you say, in addition, has the voice to say, you essentially lied to us. You pretended to be something you were Mm -hmm. not. And I think by the nature of these institutions, which are very hierarchical, very pyramidal, the public, which is used now to a flat digital world where you can get the date, you can get a car, you can get anything you want, a house, literally the speed of light by clicking a computer, suddenly is confronted with government and media that is distant, far away, slow moving, and never listens. Part mm-hmm. of the old model was it was in broadcast mode, it spoke, but it did not hear, all right? It was just incapable of that, and it still is. So that has, I think, instilled a great deal of alienation. We can talk about how realistic the public is, and it is my take that the public is driven by a lot of utopian expectations. In other words, much of what the public wants from government is what the government used to promise, but I think we now know that those promises were not fulfilled. But well, the public is still insisting somehow. And in fact, even more so, there's an even existential aspect to this. A lot of these protests go on indefinitely. The gilets jaunes in France, because these are people who were nothing, right? And now they're somebodies. The media is there taking their, you know, their activities and seriously and, and interviewing them and so forth. So giving that up means going back to being a nobody. So there are several layers to this, but it, the incentive is the public is probably going to find
2: something to spark up about. So I'm still trying to understand why this is such a transformation of a political system. right? So, okay, you have these old institutions that worked on information advantage and hierarchy and prestige. You have a brilliant bit in the book where you talk about the fact that the names used to be quite stodgy, right. or sort of a Public Broadcasting Corporation, and the New York Times, right. and so on. And now you have these new entrants which democratize access to information. Uh, they're not called the National Search Engine Corporation. Right, Google. And they allow everybody access to all this information. And so as a result, there's a crisis of trust. The sort of elite consensus is challenged much more. Uh, I get all of that, but why does that dissolve the hold that political institutions have, that traditional economic institutions have to such an extent? I, I'm not sure that I've yet understood why that is a phase shift in human history. Basically,
1: in every society, you need a class that decides the old New Testament question, Pontius Pilate, what is truth? There's a class that says, this is so? I mean, I was a member of CIA, that's what we did to the president. Mr. President, this is really the way it is. That's not what you're reading in the papers. This is so, all right? When that class is delegitimized as it is completely now, when it is not replaced by another class, which is normally what happens, you have both when communism took over and then when it was overthrown, a new class took over that served those functions, That's not what's happening now. The public is not interested in taking over. The public is not interested in power. The public is interested in telling government to do things that government probably cannot do. And the basic function is when there are disputes, not only of opinion, but of facts, but of the interpretation of the world as it is. You you always are living within this, this big framework that everybody shares and that all the debates and disputes happen within that framework, you take that framework and you smash it. It's like a big mirror. You smash it on the ground and all you have is fragments now. And that's where we are. The, The system, I think, is breaking down because you can't even agree on fundamentals. You can't even agree on what is and what is not. And part of it is perspectival. And I always say, that's something that the elites always got wrong. The elites are the people who run these institutions that I've been talking about. That wasn't CIA, I can tell you this. If you're an elite, everybody else had a perspective, you had scientific truth. So you spoke, you know, ex cathedra as an authority, and, and yeah, they told you, yeah, but I think this, I think that, yeah, but that's because, if you were where I am, you would see differently, so shut up and listen. That is gone, that is completely gone. And yet the modes of thinking and behaving and their rhetoric from the top of these organizations from the elites hasn't changed. So you still have that feeble attempt at, you know, well, yes, I know, and but the public isn't buying it anymore. And the public in those fractured pieces of the old truth, you know, you have those talk about post-truth. You know, of course, I'm not a postmodernist. If you're standing on a street and a truck is coming at you? Is it really a truck? Is it real? You get out of the way. I mean, the reality is reality, but reality can be seen from many different perspectives. Okay? If you're standing at the top of the Empire State Building, New York City kind of looks like the Heavenly City, right? If you're standing at the bottom of the Empire State Building and there's a bum puking on the corner and there's people, you know, honking their cars, it's like hell.
2: right? It's the opposite. Same New York, Different perspectives, all right. So and different valuations. I kind of love the New York of the hunking, puking uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. bum. But <laughs> you're unique in that. Perhaps no. I think a lot of what people love about New York is its raw energy and overcares and and so on and so forth. So I'm not. I'm not unique. But again, okay. I, look, I see how that makes our parties more contentious. I see how that explains a sense of free chaos that you see mm. in lots of places. But I do think that this leads to a kind of conclusion in what you just said and in the book, that all of these hierarchical institutions will eventually be swept aside and that the revolt of the public will replace them. And and I have sort of two (coughs) questions here, right? The first is, what will they replace them with? Is it possible to replace these hierarchical institutions with something else? Or will you just end up getting continual contestation of those institutions, an ongoing, perhaps permanent, trust crisis, and so on, but without substitution. Let's start with that question.
1: Yeah, as you know, I don't do predictions as the CIA uh, business model, and it's pretty failed. The question, do we need hierarchies? I mean, uh, you can have the discussion, but I don't know how you can run a modern society without some sort of hierarchies. Do we need the hierarchies as steep and as industrial model as we have now? No, that's something that was just a historical accident, that we became the way we are somewhere in the uh, early 20th century, it became progressively more so, and we could flatten the structures. It had to still be a hierarchy, but it could be much flatter, okay? Does the public want to replace the hierarchies? The public has no interest in replacing the the hierarchies. The public, really, when you get down to it, is interested in bashing away at them. The public has very few positive traits. And there are moments when you could say, and Hosni Mubarak was was one instance in, in Egypt, where you could say, well, okay, that's it. I would, if I were an Egyptian, be ready to bash that institution. And there are moments where, to me, it strikes me as nihilistic almost. Uh, what happened in Chile just recently where the price of transportation, of mass transit, went up, and the answer that that particular public responded with was burn down huge sections of that transportation system. That is nihilism at some point. And if you ask the public that is engaged in this, the gilles de the Yellow Vests in France, which I've studied pretty well, they tell you, well, you have to do this. You have to do it, because if you don't destroy things, nobody pays attention to you. Mm-hmm. So we're caught in this sort of um, dynamic where the public is not interested in replacing. It's interested in bashing. And the hierarchies right now, at this moment, the elites right now, are not interested in reforming. They're interested in clinging to what they got. And these most extraordinary changes like Brexit or like Trump... It's like, no, we have to somehow go back to before. (laughs) We can't accept that this ever happened. This is an impossibility. This is a glitch in the matrix, and it violates my sense of reality. So in some weird way or another, we're going to reactionary mode and bring the world back to where it was before Hmm. Trump and before Brexit. And it it never occurs to these elites to, to listen to what the public is saying with a very loud voice and to think, well, how can you maintain these institutions in a form that's at least semi-authoritative with this public the way it is. Clearly not by the way you're acting right now.
2: Changes need to be made. So what would those changes look like? Because I agree that, as you're saying, the industrial hierarchies of an early age are probably unsustainable. And frankly, there's good reasons to change them because there's probably ways to use new technologies to organize those aspects of our countries, of our lives much better. And I also agree that you need to take the rise of populism seriously as an expression of deep discontent. It's not just people woke up one morning and got crazy. And so promising real changes that respond to that anger is the only way we can keep the system together. But I also find that a lot of the things that people sell in this space is nickel, that there's a lot of sort of very half-baked ideas about how to use digital democracy and all kinds of things that have never been tested, and I think for quite deep reasons, uh, would not work. And as you're saying, there is also this nihilistic streak in the public, and you want to make sure that you don't give in to that, right? You're not going to say, all right, look, let's just burn down the whole transport system. because like like No responsible person should say that. So what does this actually mean? What, what should we be doing? How can we be reinventing these institutions?
1: Well, I mean, I don't know how many layers there are between you and me, and the president of the United States. But I can tell you, the fact that I don't know right there, I can tell you probably hundreds of layers, all right? I worked in, in government, I can tell you, the government could be a lot flatter. The hierarchies that exist today can be a lot flatter and a lot more responsive. And yes, I'm with you. I think e-democracy is, is a nice dream. I think you can make certain aspects of your official data digitized. You know, Estonia has done this, and and it, and it gives people security that their data. You can even look at what the the police have on you, you can you can request it and you get it, it's there. All your data is yours, you own it. Mm-hmm. I think that is a step in the right direction. But as an e-democracy where we all kind of meet in this gigantic forum called the internet and the stock, that's not gonna work. That's just not gonna work. So what you need is a few things, and, and I guess you have to ask, what are the complaints of the public writ large, all right? What is the public rebelling against? and when you listen to the elites there's always some elite obsession like globalism or racism or whatever but honestly when what i have read what these revolts which are very articulate people in them are constantly talking about it what they themselves say okay so what are the themes and i see two themes that seem to dominate pretty much every revolt and that was from the ones that look way back uh in 13 and 14 to the ones that are going on right now in 2019 One is distance. And I guess it manifests itself differently in different countries as these things always have, and that has not changed. But say in the US, it kind of works like this. Okay, you are my neighbor. I just voted for you to become my representative in Washington. Used to be just like me. You used to talk just like me. Hmm. Now you've disappeared into the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you on TV. You don't even look like you anymore. You don't sound like anybody around here anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I'm yelling at you about, look, we have concerns, and you're not paying any attention. to me. You You seem to be very interested in talking to all these other powerful mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. You've disappeared into the top of the pyramid, and you're not really my representative. You are just in it for yourself, and I'm going to pay the bill. That is almost invariably an aspect of every revolt. And I think actually there's a lot of truth to it because that whole industrial model is exactly like that. You are put up at the top of the pyramid and you're really not there to talk to the people at the bottom of it. You're there to interact
2: with the other elites. I think we need to understand that that can't go on like that. And this, by the way, is a particular problem for left-wing parties around the world. I mean, it's amazing that left-wing parties have gone from being the parties that serve people with fewer qualifications and yes. less income to the ones that serve people with higher educations uh, and to some extent higher income. Has completely this is right. true of a Democratic Party in the yeah. United States. It's yeah. also true of most left-wing parties in, in right. Europe. I mean, I think there is questions about what a meaningful shallow hierarchy would look like. And what a lot of populists do is a simulacrum of responsiveness. They talk in a a crass way. They sort of, you know, echo the things that people are really angry about. But often, I don't think they take the worries that people have very seriously, and they certainly don't actually end up helping with the things that make them upset. And so I think the danger is that this produces a cheap simulacrum of being close to the people.
1: Yeah, no, I think there's any question about that. I mean, when you look at, for example, the Trump voters there have been all kinds of stereotyping of them, but it really were quite a diverse coalition, okay? Mm. But a large majority of them said, I like him because he talks just like me, mm. yeah. all right? So, I mean, what that means, we'll leave unexamined right now, but that's what the way they felt about it. But look at Trump. I mean, he's a man who names towers after himself. This is not a man who's going to flatten government you know, in right, the least. Right. So so you're 100% correct. However, if you want an indication of how things might change, I'll put two people who are of uh, the exact opposites of a uh, political spectrum. Trump is one and uh, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, the other. They are constantly present to their base. Mm. They are not distant mm. because of the use, in Trump's case, of Twitter, although he seems to be getting weirder and weirder about that. But, but, and it has worked so far that his base feels that he's there. Mm. He's projecting that voice that is his voice. And I mean, I read his book because I felt like I had to read the art of the deal. Right, right. And everybody says, well, it was, it was ghostwritten but you could hear his voice. Right? He yeah. was talking, all right? It's the same damn guy who was out there now talking about whatever, and you could hear his voice in his tweets. I mean, there he is. He's not far away. He's right here. Yeah, uh, AOC, she basically made a personal diary out of Instagram with tremendous political import. So she has like... She talks about politics, of course, but she has like little makeup sessions where she talks about how she puts on. Suddenly, she's a person. Hmm. She's
2: not some, you know... You don't st- see the finished product. You see yeah. the person who becomes the finished product in certain contexts when she has to put up the makeup or whatever, yes. but you also see sort of the things she very cleverly treated about, you know, how is it's decided who gets which office yes. and what that looks yes. like and so on. So, and yeah, you get to go and be adventure with her. And there is a, a definition of that that's gained a lot of I think,
1: credibility, is that these are two people who, whatever else they may be, are very authentic, right? I completely disagree with that. I completely disagree with that. I mean, think of Trump. He lives in front of cameras. AOC puts the camera in front of herself, okay? You cannot be authentic when you have a... These are just extraordinary performers. These are people who are extraordinary performers and can convey a sense of themselves, whatever that might be, to a public that is very hungry for that. Mm. Very hungry for that. These are not people who are talking in that weird jargon and talking as if they know and I don't and who are condemning me for my opinions because they, they may not fit their
2: model of what my opinion should be. These are people who are just like me. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing where, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, it was the era of the perfected sort of PR politician, right? Yeah. The politician yes. who has the perfect soundbite for everything, who yes. always looks good, whose tie is always the appropriate one, and so on and so forth. Tony right? Blair. Yeah, and a bunch of other people, yeah. you know. And I think now you're in the era where there's a counter reaction against that. And it's interesting when you look at how many very old politicians have suddenly been fashionable. I mean, you can see that, obviously, in the three leading politicians of the Democratic Party right now. But, you know, I think the, the best examples are Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn. And I don't actually think that it's so much the appeal of their particular political program. And it's not so much the appeal that they are the best speakers in the hall. I mean, Bernie Sanders certainly has his own kind of charm, but, you know, he's like an older guy who just like goes on about the same thing all of the time, you know. But that is authentic, right? He has been banging on about the same stuff for 40 years when people didn't like it and he was happy to do it in 50 people in a back room. And now he does it in the presidential debate stage. And so it is the sort of, it is negative space in a weird way. It is the denial of the distance that draws people to them. And then I think you're right that somebody like AOC is now probably the inheritor of that. You know, with somebody like Bernie Sanders, there was sort of negative space in a certain kind of way, and AOC is a sort of younger version who actually grew up in this new world and doesn't embody it sort of by default because they were always a weird outsider, but because they are sort of coming in as the mainstream of this new movement in an hard way.
1: So to your question though, to get a little deep into that, part of the answer to this part is generational, I think, okay? I think that the art of dealing with digital platforms in such a way that you seem to be talking to somebody who doesn't want to be lectured at or sneered down at, but you sound like his next door neighbor, that is going to, I suspect, be a lot more uh, of a visible, of the next generation of politicians and of elites. And in part, I think what we need, I mean, honestly, is elite house cleaning. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of young elites with old heads, so it's not just generational. I think you need elites that understand that, number one, the the old act doesn't work anymore. The old act is failed, okay? You can give reasons whether it's objectively failed or not. It doesn't really matter. It's failed in the eyes of the public. And until that gets resolved and authority is restored to the system that the elites manage, nothing is going to happen in a positive way. And you need somebody who then is willing to address that. So what what does needs to be done? One of the things is the rhetoric has to be very different. The behavior has to be di- very different. If you're Mark Zuckerberg, you go meet bankers in your t-shirt and sweatpants. This guy could buy the world over 20 times, but that's what he does. Okay, it, it's kind of a message. It's, it's again, it's not the National Bank of the United States,
2: it's Facebook. He's well, it was right. I mean, especially as in, it, it, at its origin, it was a message of saying, "I'm not part of the old world of business. This is a new world of business." I, right. I am not wearing the old school tie. No, that of course has become its own convention. Silicon yes, yeah. Valley now it's, it's t- just t- totally, you know yeah. the, the yeah. sort of you know five hundred dollar t shirt that looks like it's ten dollars is the new Brooks Brothers suit, but that's fine. It's been a shift change, right? We've been talking all this while about the first theme you mentioned. So yes. you said one thing that all these pros have in common and that we all complain about is distance. And we've all, I mean, I think the last 10 minutes of our conversation has been about distance. So yes. I'm intrigued to hear what's the second one.
1: The second one is failure. Failure. The sense that the people at the top have failed in every respect and Failure is invariably interpreted not as incompetence, but as corruption, right? It's not really that they have failed. It's just that they're not interested in succeeding for me. They all succeed in their own terms. They all seem to, no matter how well or badly they do, they end up pretty well off, but they're not listening. I am being failed by them, okay? I honestly think that's where the utopian expectations come in, okay? Mm -hmm. I honestly think that's an interesting one because... Um, in many of the revolts that I have studied, when you look at the objective conditions of the people who were in revolt, it was better than their parents, way better than their grandparents. These were people who had, most of them, high levels of education. They all had digital devices that were masters of the digital world. You don't do that if you're a poor person or a marginal person. I mean, if you look at the revolt of the public, There are no poor people. There are no marginal people. There are no discriminating minorities with one or two possible exceptions. And it's people who actually, both from the terms of the world and from the perspective of history, and I don't know what other standard you can judge by, are pretty well off, but feel not that way. Feel failed by the people who are in charge and feel like they ought to be doing
2: somehow better. So what's, and I'm sorry to be so solution-minded, Yeah, what's the solution to that? Because on the first one of distance, that's difficult to resolve, but we've talked about some of the ways in which new generations might be able to produce at least the illusion of being close to people. And once that's become the new mode in politics, perhaps it'll stabilize certain things. Well, I mean, how on earth if people have these utopian expectations, if they've actually lead relatively good lives, they have an education, they have a good income, but they still feel all of the elites have failed, we should blow the system up. How is that ever going to change? Well, I mean,
1: I always say, the first politician that tells me, I don't have all the answers, but let's try this. And if this doesn't work, we will tweak it and do trial and error. Trial and error has been the only process through which the human race has advanced, okay? Nobody has ever sat down in a corner and come up with some magnificent replacement to what is standing on the ground. So whenever that politician says that to me, I'll vote for him, or her. Basically, you're now sliding out of politics and bumping almost into morality, moral grounds, right? The industrial model of political discourse Promised great changes. It was utopian, right? I mean, uh, essentially revolution was the end point and you could say, well, we can get there violently or we can get there peacefully by reform, but there was this this progressive end point that was utopia, right? And everything was directed that way. And it was directed that way in the democracies, it was directed that way in the totalitarian governments right and left. So that has been removed. Nobody believes in revolution anymore and nobody thinks it's possible, but nobody thinks it's good. So now we have a system that has no endpoint, right? But we still have that rhetoric of, I will change, I will mm-hmm. do, I will, and the public has absorbed this and is throwing it back at the politicians. The difference is now they can tell where the
2: failures are. That's fascinating. I mean, you would assume that this sort of very state, rule bound, hierarchical politics of old would go together with relatively limited promises and a sense that the outside world is going to continue being more or less the same. And that the new, more chaotic era of a revolt of the public would be the one in which people want these utopian goals. But you're sort of inverting it. You're saying that actually a lot of the time, the old industrial hierarchical politics claimed that it was able to produce a revolution in the outside world. And perhaps the way to manage the world of the public is to cease making big promises that you keep failing at delivering, and actually going to saying, hey, I can't give you very much, but perhaps I can give you these couple of small things and I'll do my best. Yes. There's something paradoxical about that. Is
1: well, if you look at the history of that old model, not really. That really was what the old model was about. If you have enough data and you have science on your side and you have a class of people who are sort of not moved by you know, irrational exuberance or opinions and emotions, then you can solve the human condition. I mean, that really was the promise of of the old modern world. We will solve the modern, the human condition. We will have equality, we will have affluence, we will have freedom of expression and enriched lives. And usually in the old ways, is what they call high modernism, usually, Manifested itself in these gigantic projects which were horrible in the totalitarian countries But not so great in democracies. My favorite is always the city of Brasilia
2: I was just I was (laughs) speaking about Brasilia because I was there in April. Yes, Mm. it's a crazy place It is a crazy place and you know when you look at some of those photographs They look kind of nice and then when you're in the city It is a terrible place to live
1: it actually today I think is two-thirds of it is unplanned because that's the, the way all those plans have gone right in the end the public in its own way took over and rebuilt Brasilia, but that the core part of Brasilia promised, and the president, whose name escapes me now, that built it, promised to compress 50 years of progress in five mm. by building Brasilia. Well, by the end of the time Brazil Brasilia was built, people had forgotten that promise. It had no effect on the Brazilian economy whatsoever. It took years for anything to even happen there, because the politicians didn't want to move away from Rio, as you might well imagine. Most of them still live in Rio and, and travel for business. Sao Paulo, yeah. Yeah, Sao Paulo. But, I mean, you look at that place, and it is like a perfect example. They built these gigantic highways, 10 lanes wide, and no sidewalks.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. No sidewalks. Because why, well... Some... every worker is going to have a car, which... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there were no workers there. I mean, and the no. other thing is that only the elites in here, the assumption was only the people at mm. the top are going to be in Brasilia. There was no working class. In fact, many of the people who built Brasilia stayed in a very unplanned way and built their own little shanties on the margins. And other people came who were wealthier and built nicer places. But it's this idea that you could solve problems from the top by being rational and being scientific and then being dispassionate. And this was a question of politics and values. It was a question of science. There's only one answer. The old way talked, and we still talk that way, and I have tried to train myself not to do it, talked about human circumstances political relationships, social relationships as problems. Hmm. Right? A problem is a mathematical equation right, right. that has one solution, right? You can't have, you just have a simple one, one and one, you can't have five. You have to have two, right? So that was the model. We spoke about problems. So I'm the person who worked out the equations for equality. That's my my claim. Oh well, you should elect me. I've worked out that equation. Well of course, what well, we now know, and Paul Ormerod has a book called Why Most Things Fail that I recommend to anybody who's interested in this. We now know that we don't know. We don't know. Nobody knows. The government doesn't know. Industry doesn't know. Corporations don't know. So the idea that you can plan ahead and deliver this, in the end, revolutionary changes
2: by just following some mathematical construct Math- in your mind. So, so then, you know, you're prescription, insofar so far as they give one on this, is to say, why don't politicians go and say, I'm going to try my best. I going to try a bunch of different things. Yeah. We might make a little bit of progress, but no huge promises. I think that responds to a very real problem you have in politics, right? I mean, one of the ways in which people lose trust in the political system is that at each election, an inspiring politician or a politician that tries to be inspiring comes in and says, I'm going to transform this country. Things will be so much better. And that's certainly in a way what Obama did in his way and then Trump did in his very, very different way. Right? And then, of course, you know, systems are very sticky and they're complicated and the means that the government has at its disposal are limited. And as you're saying, it's not clear that we are always taking the right measures in any case. And so they might make a little bit of progress in something, but really reality remains relatively unchanged. And so that produces this sense of elite failure. They keep promising these huge things and I don't actually see any change. So why should we trust anything these people say, right? So what you're saying is that we should make these very limited promises and that you would vote for that politician, but you know, you are an elite, Martin, I'm sorry to say. And it's not clear to me that so many of you and my compatriots would join in this vision, would actually be willing to vote for a politician who says, I'm boring, I'm going to try and do my best, and perhaps you'll get a little bit of something, but I can't really promise you anything much. Do you think that that will actually win against the people who are willing to say, you know, the problem is, all these people have promised you things, but they weren't willing to smash things. I'm going to smash things, and then you'll be able to get everything, I promise. you. Yeah, right now... Which is a populist in a sense.
1: Right now, no. Right now, no. But, okay we are in the very very early stages of what is i think a radical transformation from the industrial age to something that doesn't even have a name yet okay and i am not a believer like marx was in these unshakable forces of history i believe that we all have a part to play it may be a small part or maybe a bigger part but we all have a part to play and that really is where I think, you know, I'm kind of uncomfortable because I am, uh, morality to me is something that I don't particularly want to preach at people, but at least contemplate the moral field because we today, I mean, I think the public today outdoes the politicians in terms of saying, well, I'm going to save the earth. I want to save the earth, mm. okay? And I'm going to save the earth by doing this. I'm going to save the earth by doing that. So it's these incredibly preposterous ideas that your personal life, can have that kind of a cosmic influence. And I think it in part is because people are existentially hungry and they don't have religion anymore and they don't have cohesive communities. Many of them don't even have cohesive families anymore. So they're looking for politics to give them what politics can't give, okay? But honestly, people who want to change the world, the conversations I have had is, you know, can you lose 10 pounds in like three weeks? Because if you can't change yourself, and most people, you look at them and you go, well, probably not, right? Mm. If you can't change yourself, how would you change the world? Mm. Reality is hard. Reality is not easy. And I think the idea that reality is easy, except for these bad people at the top, That's where we are right now. So the people at the top are saying, yeah, I'm with you. And yes, everybody else but me is bad. So vote for me. They're feeding that frenzy. But in fact, that's not the case. The people at the top are clueless. There's no question about that. And some of them are bad, but mostly not. Mm. Uh, Mostly they're responding to what they think the public wants. And I think the public ought to want what is achievable. I think it's really on you and it's really on me not to say, by golly, the president ought to do this and ought to do that and ought to do the other, and to be maybe a little more forgiving of failure mm. and certainly a lot more realistic about what politics can do for an individual who is, as we said before, so many, many, many layers removed from the president. I mean it's not like right, right. Trump what if what influence does Donald Trump have on my personal life? Zero. So I have an influence in my personal circle as to how i influence in this regard of negation nihilism you know are you always complaining or are you just kind of trying to understand or are you trying to looking for a better way forward this slides away from politics into morality it's kind of uncomfortable but i don't see how you can avoid it
2: hmm. no that's very convincing to me and by the way this piece about never ascribing to malevolence what you can ascribe to incompetence i think yes. is key i mean yes i think it's amazing and it goes with the theme of what you've been saying how many people deeply believe in conspiracy theories. I mean, if you go out there and talk to ordinary people, you know, a huge number of people really do believe in some form of conspiracy theory. And so I've found myself in these arguments where I'm trying to argue against the sort of conspiracist mindset. And I thought, I wonder the only argument that works a little bit, and only a little bit, is to say, well, look, imagine you and your 10 best friends got together and you had a weekend to hash out a detailed plan for what should happen. Would you be able to agree? Would all of you actually be able to say, yes, we want to all of these things? No, you just argue for two days and then go away without having come to an agreement. So how are all of these Bilderbergs and all of these conspiracies supposed to work? It's just people are not that competent. I think the conspiracy mindset nevertheless retains a stronghold. I want to end the conversation by pushing you a little bit on another aspect of the book. So, you know, because of the greater availability of information, because these publics can self-assemble in anger and sort of take things down, you think that the public is at this point much stronger than these old-fashioned, hierarchical, industrial-age institutions. And so what we can expect is more chaos, flatter hierarchies, more legitimacy crises, and so on. I have one worry about all of this, which is that the playing field may be very different for old industrial-age institutions in democracies compared to dictatorships. So here, you know, the New York Times can't say, shut up with your criticism of what we've been writing. The president can't say, well, if you assemble to protest, I'm just going to shoot at you. But of course, determined dictators can, right? So uh, when the hierarchy is not tied, as the famous phrase goes about democracy, with one hand behind its back, when it's fighting all out by telling the people below them in the hierarchy and the most hierarchical element of any state is the army, to go out and shoot the protesters, to go out and shut down critical media outlets and all of those kinds of things, it may actually be able to weather the revolt of the public. And if that's true, there's a principled advantage for hierarchical institutions that are willing to use any form of force in order to stay in power compared to hierarchical institutions of a form that we used to have in democracies then this technological shift may actually favor dictatorships over democracies. Now, again, I'm not projecting that this will happen, but I think it's a real worry that hierarchical constitutions that are willing to use brute force in order to sustain themselves may prove one of the real winners of this moment. So I'm interested in hearing what you think about that.
1: Well, I don't think it has to do with power. I think it has to do with information. It's the old dictator's dilemma, right? If you're a dictator you want to be legitimate if you want to be legitimate you have to be prosperous i mean that's you, you weren't elected so you want to create economic prosperity if you want to create economic prosperity you have to open up for information because otherwise businesses can't be conducted but if you open up for information then people are going to start criticizing you so you can either try to ride that tiger or you can shut it down people like uh, the regimes like the one in north korea and cuba have to basically shut it down and yeah, they have written out the revolt to the public quite comfortably, thank you very much. China has allowed a lot. Iran, to some extent, a lot. Particularly China, I feel they are dependent on that prosperity continuing. And let's watch and see what happens, because the prosperity is not continuing, as far as I can tell. Let's see what happens, because they have all the elements in place for a revolt to the public there, right? Yeah, yeah. And now, if you move over to the democracies, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I see what happened in Chile, where the police and the military started shooting people, and the response was the opposite of what was intended. The entire public as a whole, public opinion as a whole, swung against the government, even though these people have been doing some very vandalistic and non-productive burning down the mass transit, therefore inconveniencing and, and, and sometimes making it impossible for people to earn a living, mm-hmm. the police acted with brutality or with strength, they showed strength, which maybe in different contexts at different age would have been acceptable, mm-hmm. and uh, it backfired. I always say, I, I know your point of view, and I mean, I'm waiting and watching. It, it may well be that they, they come say, and let's hope not, knock on wood, an evil political genius that can take this information environment and somehow turn it to the advantage of a dictatorship, right? That hasn't happened and the tendency to me is in the exact opposite direction what is happening is this nihilistic public just allowing itself you know this orgy of bashing at institutions without a thought as to what should be in its place so information is not power that matters and in the democracies and the old democracies like i said keep an eye open i come from cuba okay By the time I was 10 years old, I had had a right-wing dictatorship and a left-wing dictatorship. I can smell one, okay? So I'm not going to say it can't happen because I know that it can, but it hasn't. And the framework and the tendency it's against that the old mass movements were the ultimate in, in industrial organization you had one person at the top and everything was ordained uh, of every layer down that just is almost impossible to carry out today there are no mass movements today and if you don't have a mass movement how can you have a true dictatorship i guess if the army is willing to shoot enough people but in a democracy
2: I, I don't see that happening martin thank you so much for coming on the podcast hey this is a great conversation Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to Pod. At gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com.
0: This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.